Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It is late July 2023, and the sound you can hear is Flint being napped. Traditionally, Flint is napped using two simple tools. Firstly, a hammer stone, and secondly, pieces of antler, which some people call antler billets. In the modern day, people use tools called boppers, pieces of wood topped with a copper cap that are basically just a little easier to use than stone and bone. Flint napping is a truly ancient art. In England, we have tools made by human ancestors dating back at least 840,000 years. Back then, human species coexisted in this country with saber-toothed cats, hyenas, primitive horses, red deer, and mammoths. The oldest known flint tools in England were found in Norfolk in 2010, but others from Spain date from 1.1 million years ago. And what's wild about the tools found in Norfolk is, all this time later, they are still sharp. I raise all this because working a flint tool is a time-consuming process. To make an axe head, for example, flint is first flaked from a larger rock, something which takes about an hour, then it's shaped further using a process called indirect percussion, and that takes days of careful work. If you've ever held an ancient tool or touched an ancient stone, you will know the feeling it gives you. A sense of past experience seems to ring through old objects beyond the range of our hearing or our understanding, speaking to us across time. With this thought in mind, gather close around the Three Ravens campfire and listen in. Welcome to the Three Ravens Podcast. There 
sat on a tree. Down and down, hey down and down, they were as black as they might be with a down. One of them said to his mate, Where shall we our breakfast take? With a down, dairy, 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 down, down. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Three Ravens podcast. My name's Martin Vaux. I'm a storyteller, writer and English romanticism obsessive. And I'm joined, as ever, by my partner in crime and all dark arts, award-winning poet, playwright, Shakespeare scholar and witch, Eleanor Condon. Hello! And as always, we should start the episode by thanking our new supporters on Patreon. Yes. Hello and welcome to Heidi and to Helen, who increased her initial support from $3 to $6 to a whopping $10. Oh, thank you so much, Helen. All hail Heidi, King of Patreon. All hail Helen, King of Patreon. Of course, if you would like exclusive content, including Patreon-exclusive episodes, episodes of The Three Ravens Film Club, all our episodes ad-free, our stories as text versions, and the monthly Three Ravens newsletter, please consider signing up for $3 a month or $6 a month at patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast speaking of which we released our film club episode for july last thursday yeah. which was all about the 1971 folk horror classic the blood on satan's claw yes we had a lot of fun watching that film and then recording that episode and if you haven't seen the film yet do check it out um we'll announce the next three ravens film club film at the start of august also we're now running our second card design contest yes. we're inviting original artwork by artists of any skill level that would look nice on the front of a greetings card these might come from anyone in the three ravens community and the theme is the folklore of winter. Please send us your entries to threeravenspodcast at gmail.com as a JPEG, and we will judge those entries at the end of the series, deciding on the three winners who will have their artwork printed as greeting cards to be sold through the Three Ravens shop for a 50-50 profit share. Yes, and the cards from the first contest will be on sale maybe by the time you're hearing this, Ooh. along with new merchandise, so do pop along to threeravenspodcast.com forward slash shop to find them. Right. Well, we're releasing this episode on Monday the 24th of July, the day before a double whammy, St Christopher's Day and St James's Day. St Christopher is pretty famous. He is the patron saint of travel. Yeah, that's right. So the story goes, St Christopher carried a child across a rough, swollen river. And then the child on the other side revealed themselves to be Christ, with the name of Christopher meaning... Christ bearer. So do we know what St. Christopher's name was before he did his Christ bearing? Well, it said his name was Reprobus, meaning scoundrel. Uh, and he was seven and a half feet tall. <laughs> what? Yep, he was meant to be a giant and a ferocious warrior. <laughs> giant scoundrel. I know, right? In his later life, he was said to have converted thousands of people in Lycia, in modern-day Anatolia in Greece, before the king, Decius, eventually sent an army of soldiers to capture him, after which he was beheaded. Oh, presumably he had to kneel down for that bit being so tall. <laughs> True. Uh, but interestingly, in Eastern Orthodoxy and plenty of other older Christian traditions... He's often depicted 
said in paintings and, and other art as having the head of a dog or wolf, which is actually relevant to my story today. Sorry, a, a giant with a wolf's head? Yeah. St. Christopher's a werewolf? Kind of. He was supposed to be a species called a kynocephalus, a dog-headed man, a species of human-animal hybrid that the ancient Greeks believed hailed from Ethiopia. That is so strange, and I completely love it. And Good. I guess maybe, you know, dogs are very helpful. Yeah. St. Christopher, very helpful. Yeah. I'm picturing a sort of St. Bernard head, because they're good at carrying <laughs> barrels of rum and well, stuff, aren't they? It's meant to be linked to Anubis and a kind of jackal-like oh. head. So in most of the art and drawing, that's, that's how he appears. Wow, that's so interesting. I've never heard of Egyptian sort of hagiography coming into Christianity. Well, that's, that's so it. fascinating. A lot of people carry St. Christopher's medals. He's quite a popular saint. I think we've got one somewhere in the house, actually. And, and yeah, to venerate St. Christopher, you're meant to, on his saint's day, have your modes of transport blessed, um, and of course carry that medal of St. Christopher, or place one in your car, or whichever vehicle you use to get around. But I think really interesting, and a saint that maybe people should read a bit more about, mm. because he's a bit weirder than your average. I would like a medal of him with a dog's head. <laughs> well, we'll see what <laughs> we can that find. that one I will put in the car. <laughs> <laughs> now, what about St. James? You said it was also St. James's day. Yeah, well, this was easy. Uh, James was one of the 12 apostles. Oh, of course. He was the second to die after Judas Iscariot and was said to have been beheaded by Herod the Great. Not directly by Herod the Great, but by Herod the Great's men. Another beheading? Are you sure this isn't beheading day? <laughs> it, could, it could be. Yeah, on the 25th of July, make sure you behead someone. No, don't do <laughs> <laughs> the risk warning on that one. <laughs> He's also known, St. James, as the Cockleshell Pilgrim. And in the English tradition, it's said that if you eat oysters on St. James's Day, you won't want for money all year round. Well, once we've recorded this episode, we're getting down the fishmongers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that could be a double whammy of good news, actually, when you think about it. First, we'll eat yummy oysters, and second, we'll have a flood of new Patreon supporters. <laughs> right then, shall we rouse the county criers from their St James's Day oyster shucking? Yes, let's talk Northamptonshire. Now, come on, you lot. You can't all be waiting around for a holy child to carry across a river. Northamptonshire is in England's East Midlands and is bordered by Leicestershire, Rutland and Lincolnshire to the north, Cambridgeshire to the east, Bedfordshire, Buckinghamshire and Oxfordshire to the south and Warwickshire to the west. So it's landlocked. Yep, although it does have canals and lots of rivers, the biggest one being the River Neen. So I'm guessing because it's in the East Midlands, Northamptonshire used to be part of Mercia. Correct. Yes. Pender country. Oh, yes. <laughs> but pre that, there are remains of loads of Iron Age and Roman sites in the county. So it was evidently really important for hundreds of years. Though it's probably worth saying that the historical event for which it's most famous these days is maybe the Battle of Naseby, which took place during the English Civil War. Yes, the Battle of Naseby and the new model army. That's right, yep. As commanded by Parliamentarian General, Thomas Fairfax and your old pal Oliver Cromwell. <laughs> now, they absolutely destroyed the main royalist army under Charles I. And that yeah. basically saw the royalists defeated. Although, old Chucky the Wands didn't actually surrender until almost a year later. Silly Charles, belonging the agony. Yes, well, he was a rather 
silly fellow, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Silly as a wheel, that one. Interestingly, there are apparently semi-regular reports of the dead Royalist army marching as ghosts through parts of Northamptonshire. What? Yep. Ghostly cavaliers that march on foot and also the ghosts on horseback that ride around, allegedly because over the years their graves have been disturbed during construction works. I love that, although I'm disturbed that the hereditary peerage never truly died. (laughs) So, from the Industrial Revolution onwards, Northamptonshire was most famous for leather and shoemaking, lots of factories churning out shoes, and, as I understand it, people from the area mostly call it Northants. Northants? That's quite fun. Yeah, it's easier to say. Northamptonshire. North Ants. (laughs) The Northern Ants. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Does it have a county motto that uh, reflects that? Uh, Well, its county motto is Rosa Concordia signum the rose symbol of harmony which i think was intended to be ironic (laughs) why well we've already mentioned the civil war but let's say people in northamptonshire didn't always see eye to eye telling me intrigued i have to ask the rose is that involved in the heraldry it is interestingly the county's emblem is a reversed version of the Tudor Rose. So the White Rose of York on the outer ring, the Red Rose of Lancaster in the middle, which is a symbol of Northampton being this place where both sides are respected. But I'm guessing, knowing English history and Uh and the character of the English people, that meant inside that the sides really didn't like one another and just sort of quietly seethed about the people in the village over the hill. Well, mostly. And sometimes they killed them as well. What is the county town in this supposedly harmonious county? Well, it is, perhaps unsurprisingly, Northampton. Okay, well, we're not being terribly imaginative with our naming conventions here, are we? No, but, you know, a lot of the counties that surround Northamptonshire are the same, with one major civic centre in the medieval era, then other places growing up later. So counties like Oxfordshire with Oxford, Warwickshire with Warwick, Leicestershire with Leicester, Lincolnshire with Lincoln. You get the so idea. I'm guessing then, based on our Oxfordshire episode, that the county town only really came to prominence post-Norman invasion. Ding, ding, ding. Pretty much. I mean, there are a load, and I mean a load, of amazing Iron Age hill forts in the county, including most notably Hunsbury Hill, which covers a massive area. Sadly, quite a lot of it being destroyed during the Industrial Revolution to mine iron oh, ore. That's a shame. Yeah, but you've also got other hill forts about, including Arbury Camp, Rainsborough Camp, Borough Hill, Gillsborough, Earthlingborough. I mean, the place isn't short of a hill fort. But is it like Oxford in that it doesn't have any castles? No, it doesn't, sadly. One major castle of note does survive, and that's Rockingham Castle, which was initially built by William the Conqueror. It's pretty amazing, but it's still in private ownership and has been since the 15th century. Wow. Yeah. So you mentioned Northampton. Why is that the county town? What what makes that special? Well, under the Romans, you did have a settlement at what later became Northampton, as well as at Kettering and Towcester. And the Roman road of Watling Street ran through the county as well. Oh, that's interesting. Um, if you need a reminder, Watling Street was this Roman route from the port of Dover in Kent right up to Lancashire. Exactly that. And it also marked the boundary of the Dane Law, which we talked about before, mm-hmm. and of the border between Anglo-Saxon Wessex and the Kingdom of Mercia. So again, you get the sense of North Ants being kind of split between different factions throughout its history. As for Northampton specifically, it became more important after the Norman invasion, especially during the medieval era. 
And have we got heritage and ruins and so on from the medieval period? Well, sadly not. Northampton Castle, for one, which was one of the most famous and beautiful castles in Norman England, was demolished during the building of the Victorian Rail Network. Oh no, it seems like poor Northampton was a bit knocked about by the Industrial Revolution. It was, but then again, the town also benefited from an influx of money and infrastructure, including the construction of the Grand Union Canal, which connected London to Leicester and Birmingham via Northampton, which, if you think about that canal, I mean... It's nuts when you consider quite how long it is, how big it is, what must have been involved in making it. Yeah, it's incredible to think how much time and money and effort went into its construction, yes. isn't it? And, uh, you know, probably still better than some of the local transport links <laughs> around <laughs> today. certainly, yeah. <laughs> but what about the rest of Northampton? Where is all the old stuff at? Well, there was this quite notable event called, and the name rather gives the game away, but still. In 1675, there was... The Great Fire of Northampton. Ah. <laughs> yeah, ah, indeed. So what there was in Northampton just went up in flames. <laughs> so after the Great Fire, I'm guessing there must have been quite a big reconstruction. There was. And for this reason, you have quite a few Georgian buildings there, including the County Hall, which is very pretty. And it's worth saying that since the Great Fire, there are loads, and I mean loads, of reported ghosts around what was once old Northampton. Oh, wow, I'm guessing people who died in the fire. Yeah, it's a very haunted place, Northampton. That's interesting and slightly traumatic if you have a ghostly encounter. For sure. I'm starting to feel a bit sorry for poor old Northampton. Yeah. Does it have much in the way of historic sites outside the county town? Yes, lots of country estates. So, like, Jane Austen's Mansfield Park is set in Northamptonshire, which is kind of the vibe of the county in general. Although of the coolest country houses thereabouts, some of them are Tudor. Oh, now you're talking. I love a Tudor house. And North Ant has quite a few really gorgeous ones. Do you remember when we were in our Warwickshire episode, you were talking about prodigy houses? Yes, they're very, those are very pretty, incredibly ornately built show mansions, Exactly, yes. Yeah. So Northamptonshire has a number of prodigy houses, including Kirby Hall, which is near the town of Corby. That one was owned by the Chancellor to Elizabeth I, so a lot of money sloshing about, and it's proper gorgeous. Then you've got Cannon's Ashby House, again, 16th century, very pretty. And perhaps most evocatively, there's also Liveden or Leaveden, spelled L-Y-V-E-D-E-N, also known as Leaveden New Build. New Build? Why New Build? That sounds like a new estate coming know, up on the outskirts right? of your village. And it ain't new. So this rather grand country house was being built by the Tresham family to replace their old Leaveden house. But the Treshams, you might remember, were a key part of the gunpowder plot. Oh, hold on a second. Yeah, so the Treshams were building this palace but never got to finish it because they were busted trying to kill James I and blow up all of Parliament, meaning this huge palace remains unfinished to this day and has been maintained as a half-built prodigy house ever since. Well, that sounds pretty sensational. Oh, yeah. It, it really does, but... If um if the Treshams were there, were the Catesbys also Correct, in yep. And the Wintors? Yep. And the Vaux's. That is absolutely right. Whoa, so Northamptonshire is where your family's from. Well, it's where they were once from, yes. So 
just a little sidebar here for listeners. Martin's family were actually part of the gunpowder plot. Yeah, um, and <laughs> yeah, it's it's the story of how we first met. Uh, so, <laughs> lost their estates and fortunes because of it, sadly. So, yeah, um, so we we don't live in an amazing Elizabethan prodigy house. No, we lost our estates and fortunes to our great shame and regret. <laughs> and while the connection to my family is quite interesting, the Treshams were super fascinating. They also built some amazing other sites in the county, including the stunning Rushton Triangular Lodge. Now, have you ever heard of this place? No, it's actually triangular. Yes. It's a kind of folly and it's a sensational Tudor building, properly eccentric and elaborate with hexagonal rooms inside a triangular tower. And it's covered with gargoyles and arcane mathematical signs and symbols. As always, pictures on the blog at threeravenspodcast.com. It sounds amazing. I really want to visit. And the Triangular Lodge, interestingly, is connected quite closely through Catholic and Protestant tensions to Apethorpe Palace. Now you've got to have heard of that. It one. rings a bell, but um, I can't think why. Can you remind me, please? Yes. Well, this palace, Apethorpe, was owned by Henry VIII and mm. then Elizabeth I, but it was most notably the favoured residence of James the First. Oh, this is his uh, romantic trysting house. Yeah, isn't that's it? right. Yes, yes. So from 1603 onwards, James met with his lover George Villiers, aka the Duke of Buckingham, at Apethorpe, and it was the site of several elaborate court masks written by the legendary playwright and contemporary of Shakespeare. Ben Johnson. Oh, yes. Is it open to the public? Only if you pre-book, but we should definitely go. It combines a medieval hall house with a Jacobean mansion, and then it has an 18th century orangery on the side. What? Yep, it's 80,000 square feet in size. (laughs) And going back to Charles I again, it was also a place that he liked to stay outside of London before... Before he got his head chopped off. <laughs> St. James's Day. Yeah. <laughs> and naturally, there were a lot more ruined priories and houses in the county, but they were mostly basically demolished after the gunpowder plot and converted into new houses during the Industrial Revolution. Meaning, compared to a lot of the counties we've spoken about, there's a relative lack of what we might normally think of as English Gothic ruins in old North Ants. Oh, it's all really interesting. And um, so what about the folklore? Let's start nice and tame with the story of the drumming well at Oundle. This is a village where apparently sounds come out of the village well, specifically booming drumming sounds, whenever a major death is set to rock the nation. Village pump doesn't do that. Seems no. a bit unfair. Yeah, I suppose so. I've got to take some slight issue with the well. Yeah, go on. Because it, it's all well and good to drum. Yes. But I'm guessing it's a bit difficult to know what it's drumming about. <laughs> like, knowing something bad's going to happen isn't actually that helpful unless you've got a little bit of detail about what the event might be. I mean, does it drum a certain rhythm? Cromwell's <laughs> going to die. I mean... How's it worked? Yes, a sort of generalised panic. <laughs> so, a fair point. Well made, Eleanor. Uh, in which case, let's switch focus to Gillsborough, a different sleepy village with an excellently named pub, the Witch and Sow. Outstanding. Now, this pub gets its name from a witch trial from 1705, where two witches were put to death for, amongst other things, riding flying pigs. Why is that a crime? (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, because pigs shouldn't fly. Oh, I suppose so. No, indeed. Now, these witches were called Mary Shaw and Eleanor Phillips, and they confessed to riding flying pigs, as well as several murders conducted by sending imps out to slaughter their foes, and, of course, sleeping with the devil, kind of mandatory. Apparently, they said that unlike a man, the devil was cold to the touch, which doesn't sound very nice to me. No, hot day in the summer, and you know, they wouldn't have had ice cream in 1705, so okay, fair enough. Uh, So, for their crimes, Mary and Eleanor were hanged at Gallows Corner on the spot that is now the race course. Wow, it seems seems a little grim. It's now the race course, yeah, which links to another local legend actually, originating from 1787 when the Colworth gang, a group of highwaymen, were hanged in front of a thousands strong crowd. Quite interesting. They terrorised the county and surrounding counties for years and famously wore masks and costumes. <laughs> so they were like a fancy dress gang. Kind of, yeah. What, what did they, what were their masks? What did they dress up so as? So they dressed as demons. Oh, OK. <laughs> and eventually they were caught because a landlord looked into the belongings of one of his guests, saw the masks, and this prompted a kind of sting operation which ended their decades-long reign of terror. It's recorded that over 5,000 people turned up to watch the execution, and to this day it said the ghosts of the Colworth gang leaders, William Pettifer and Richard Law, and the ghosts of Mary Shaw and Eleanor Phillips, still haunt the racecourse grounds. <laughs> Literally scaring the horses. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> and in terms of ghosts, old St John the Baptist Church in Bounton is a ruin now since its spire collapsed in the 1700s, but apparently the ruins are super haunted, including by the ghost of a young woman who could be heard crying at night. I don't like that. I'm not a fan of crying ghosts. I just, I feel really sorry for them. Yeah, well, there's a bit more to the tale because it's said that if you pass by the ruined church on Christmas Eve, then you'll see the ghost there and that she's a woman with red hair. We know about this because in 1875, a young man called William Parker did exactly this, passed by the ruined church on Christmas Eve and saw this beautiful red-haired woman crying the ghost apparently spoke to him and asked him for a kiss which he's said to have granted the woman then made him promise he would return in one month's time and he said he would only what only his family when they heard about this were terrified because they knew the legends the ghost apparently belonged to a woman who killed herself in the churchyard over the grave of her newly married beloved. Seemingly, she's a heartbroken ghost looking for love. That's so sad. I was about to say, oh, don't kiss ghosts. That never (laughs) ends well. But actually, in this instance, I think kiss the ghost. Well, (laughs) She's so lonely. William Parker, at his family's behest, did not go back for that second kiss a month later. And he paid the price. Church records show that he died suddenly of a heart attack on the night of 24th January, 1876. Whoa. Well, you know what? I hope that in dying, he ended up with his beautiful red-haired ghost in the (laughs) afterlife just snogging for all eternity. Well, maybe. But if they did, she's apparently still crying. So William Parker must be a really bad (laughs) kisser. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Now, talking about interesting church-related things, there's also this parish 
of Stowe Nine Churches. Is it called Nine Churches because it's a single parish with nine churches? No, way more interesting <laughs> than that. Do you remember back in our Lancashire episode, we talked about the Winwick pig? That was the ghost pig that yeah. kept moving the building materials, didn't it? Like yeah. the, the anti project manager pig. Yeah, that's right. So in Stowe Nine Churches, they have their own legend of a ghost pig who did almost exactly the same thing. They call it the Beast of Nine Churches. And the legend is that rather than a pig, it was a giant head hairy, boar-like creature. <laughs> Sounds like a bit of one-upmanship on the, the Winwick pig. <laughs> the yeah. builders sort of inflating what it was. Are you saying that it was a ghost pig, Jeremy? No, Stanley, it was a huge hairy boar with eyes of flame. <laughs> yeah, it does a bit, doesn't it? Anyway, it said that during the medieval era, a team of builders were trying to construct St Michael's Church. Only this beast the giant ghostly hog kept <laughs> moving the stone and wood and so on by night. Love it. But the twist with this one is that the builders tried eight different spots for the church, all of which the pig didn't like. Wow, fussy. Before they gave up and built it where it now stands. And it said, some days, if you go to nearby Upper Stowe and look down the valley towards Stowe Nine Churches, you can see, in addition to St Michael's, the ghostly shapes of the eight other identical churches standing in the landscape. You have to wonder if there are rushes of these ghost pig legends in the medieval era. Rashes of ghost oh, pigs. No. <laughs> You're a silly man. Thank you. Now, talking animal and monster folklore, we haven't heard from her for a while, but she's back and about time too, Eleanor. Can you hear a mighty moo being carried on the breeze? Yes, is it the dun cow? Yep. Is there a dun cow legend in Northamptonshire? There absolutely is. Oh, yes, I love the dun cow. In case you missed the memo, I mean, I <laughs> don't know how you would have done. We're a bit obsessed. Yep. The dun cow was this legendary monster, a giant cow that was said to terrorise the English landscape. And it makes sense she would crop up in Northamptonshire when you think about it. What with Guy of Warwick being from so nearby, as you mentioned way back in episode five. Of course, yes. And wonderfully, you can go and see one of the Dun Cow's ribs at Stanion Church in Northamptonshire any day of the week. Oh, amazing. Yeah, still there in the church. It's locked up most of the time, but you can ask the church warden if you want to take a look. And even better, the site where the fearsome Dun Cow was slain near Stanion, possibly by Guy of Warwick himself, is commemorated in the naming of nearby Cow Common. It said that there, on Cow Common, is the place where the rest of the remains of the Dun Cow were buried. Oh, that's sensational. Please tell me your story's going to feature the fearsome Dun Cow. It doesn't, I'm afraid. Oh. But it is a spooky one. It's called The Hexam Heads, and I'll start spinning my yarn right after this. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I have only the highest regard for the dead. As I write this now, I do so in a darkened room, the nib of my pen dancing across a fragment of paper which was once strewn across dirty, bare floorboards. It is pitch black here, so perhaps what I am writing even now is illegible. Yet, it is for the best. This hovel is isolated and long abandoned, so no one will think to check here. And though I am uncertain how much of this message will be decipherable, I have come too far to turn back, and only write for if, by some chance, this message is found, the receiver should know this is a warning. The first thing to acknowledge is that I have made mistakes. Not just one, of course, but several. These errors lined up together have been like a snaking trail of dominoes. One struck the other, and the rest was mere inevitability. My name is Hyde. Francis Hyde. Though my reputation now is destroyed, I was once a respected scientist, an engineer and esteemed member of the British Astronomical Association with expertise in radioactivity. For many years, I contributed a monthly column to Practical Electronics magazine, was friends with well-known figures in British public life, and my knowledge of radio astronomy brought me into the orbit of any number of people many think of as kooks. Some of those very kooks are famous, of course, and you might know them from television. Yet their strangeness is due to an unalterable truth. Anyone engaged in pioneering research is, by the nature of their work, in the business of exploring the unexplained. Do not please misunderstand me. I do not mean the unexplainable. Even the most mystical or parapsychic phenomenon are, like all things, explainable given time and application. But this riddle, it is one that has confounded me and so many others. The fragmentary solutions I have gleaned brought me only ruin, and in taking this course of action, I hope to spare anyone else the shame of ignominy. It all started in 1971 with a boy playing in the dirt. That's not to say that he's responsible for the root phenomena, but rather my downfall began with his innocent discovery. His name was Colin Robson, and he was digging, weeding a flower bed, I believe, on a bright summer's day in his mother's back garden. They lived on Reed Avenue, the Robsons, in the town of Hexham, many miles north from here. The boy was, all told, astonished to find when his spade dug down into the earth a head made of stone. It was no larger than a tennis ball, buried but a few feet beneath the surface. It was, he said, uncannily like a head 
he had dreamed about, one he had been compelled to make for himself out of clay during an art lesson at school. The face of his sculpture had been so grotesque that his art master had made him destroy the effigy with immediate effect. And then he found the very object he had dreamed of, but a few meters from the place where he slept, buried beside an old stone wall. This boy, Colin Robson, showed the head he had found to his brother, Leslie, who had been watching out of their bedroom window, to return to the garden and continue to dig, at which time they found a second head. Only on closer inspection, the two were not very much alike. Both were carved, one of dark stone, one of light, and they were threaded with seams of twinkling quartz. Even now, in the total dark, I can see that same quartz twinkling, though there is no light here for them to reflect. It is a quirk of their design, one of their many mysteries. The boys brought the heads inside their home on Reed Avenue and washed them clean. They noticed then the faces, the styling of carved locks resembling hair, the uneven mouths, the bulbous sockets for eyes. One, yellow-red in colour, they labelled the girl, and the other, greenish-grey in hue, they named the boy. They set the pair on the kitchen table, brimming with curiosity. Their mother, Jenny, was amused by the boys' discovery, but very soon they noticed with alarm that although the heads would be placed facing one direction, upon returning to the room, one or other family member would find that the heads had moved, as if they had turned their non-existent necks to look about them and survey their surroundings. Mrs. Robson took to turning the heads away from the room, leaving them facing the kitchen wall, but time and again the heads would have turned. She thought it was a prank being played by her sons, but it was not. Not at all. Shortly after, the phenomena began. The first reports from the Robson family were of sounds, thumping noises like footsteps in the dead of night. The slamming of doors followed, then the noises of what appeared to be nails on wood. Further phenomena developed, including breaking glass, light bulbs, drinking glasses, panes of window glass, all would crack and splinter always at night. Then, one evening, when two of the Robson daughters were asleep, they were awoken by a rain of glass falling from the ceiling of their bedroom. The shards came down from nothing, appearing out of the air itself. The children, understandably terrified, refused to return to their bedroom, and theories began to develop that the Robsons were experiencing the terrors of a poltergeist. Yet their next-door neighbours, the Dodd family, had also begun to experience phenomena. Glass breaking, sounds on the floorboards at night. Sylvia, the Dodd's daughter, was awoken one night to find a creature made of shadows running its fingers through her hair. She screamed and the creature vanished. 
Then, one night, when the Dodd's younger son, Ryan, was ill, his mother, Ellen, went into his room to keep the boy company. She lay beside him, but was awoken by Ryan, who was complaining about someone tugging at his feet. Ellen told Ryan not to worry, that he was feverish and imagining things. Yet, then, she too felt a sensation on her legs, hands touching her, tugging at her as if seeking her attention. She rolled over, looked and spied by her own report, a creature made of shadows. The beast was, she said, on all fours, yet had the aspect of something only half human. From the waist up, she said, the creature was like a human being, amorphous but with long hair and slender arms. Yet, from the waist down, the being had the legs of an animal, perhaps a sheep or goat. And once Ellen locked eyes with the entity, she screamed and the beast fled. In a surge of adrenaline, Ellen Dodd leapt up and chased the shape, something she found later to be inexplicable. The animal leaped down the stairs and away she followed and found, when she did, that the front door of her home was wide open. It was her scream in the night that brought knowledge of the Hexam Heads to Ellen Dodd, with Mrs. Robson inquiring as to the cause of her screams that night. The two women then spoke to the newspapers, and photographs of Colin and Leslie were taken at this time, holding their heads, smiling uneasily. Mrs. Dodd wrongly believed the heads may have come from the ruins of Hexham Abbey, so Jenny Robson took them there and gave them to a Mrs. Betty Gibson, a volunteer of some esteem. One night later, Mrs. Gibson sought to return them, saying she had experienced a tense and restless night but the Robsons encouraged her to find another way. Mrs. Gibson duly passed the heads to Richard Bailey, an amateur archaeologist who, in turn, gave them to the Newcastle Museum of Antiquities, reporting strange issues with the electrics in his home. There, they were inspected by Barbara Harbottle and Robert Miquette, who completed inspections and drawings of the head, but both reported a strange energy coming from the relics and a cracking of a number of glass specimen cases, so implored Mrs. Robson to take them back. Thankfully for the residents of Reed Avenue, the press attention brought the Robsons into contact with Dr. Anne Ross, a professor at the University of Newcastle. As expert in Celtic carvings, she had worked a great deal at ancient sites in her native Northamptonshire, including the vast Brack Mills burial outside Northampton, and was only too keen to take the heads into her custody. The Robsons and the Dodds were said to have had their homes exercised after this, but ultimately both families moved away. Likewise, although the carvings remained known as the Hexham Heads from then on, they were in almost perpetual motion. That is, until they came into my possession. When Dr. Ross embarked on her study of the heads, she soon concluded that they were over 1,800 years old and matched similar heads from the ancient kingdom of Brigantia. She had seen many such carvings and even collected them, owning over 200 similar Celtic relics from across central and northern England. 
These kinds of heads had been used, she wrote, in a paper published in the journal Archaeologia Iliana in ancient pagan head rituals. It was Dr. Ross who found the remnants of red dye through the carved hair of the head, previously known as the girl, which she renamed the witch. The dye was later identified as iron oxide quarried from Hunsbury Hill. Ross renamed the female head because, although she was a woman of science and some regard, appearing on television at several Northamptonshire dig sites, she too began to experience witch-like phenomena. In the house she shared with her son, daughter and husband Richard, her family members and visitors all began to report sudden plunges in temperature, an atmosphere of darkness and shadow that Anne Ross described as evil. Amidst this malevolent atmosphere, Dr. Ross and her children reported noises, footsteps, the slamming of doors, breaking of glass, and a sense of an angered female presence. Then, one night, Dr. Ross was awoken in a panic, feeling a presence at the end of her bed, though this shape was of something else entirely. She turned to look at the entity and reported seeing a creature made of shadow, though it was an inversion of the sorts from that reported previously. For the beast Dr. Ross saw looming over her, pitch black against her white bedroom door, was a male being with the lower portions of a man and the upper body and head of a wolf. Much like Ellen Dodd, Dr. Ross said she felt inspired, compelled perhaps to chase the creature. So she leapt from her bed and dashed after the animal, noting its thick, wisping, smoke-like fur. It ran down the stairs, she said, bounding towards the back of her house. Yet when she followed, she found no signs of the looming shape, only the two stone heads sat on her work table, both looking at her as if they had long been awaiting her arrival. A similar occurrence was experienced by Dr. Ross's daughter, Berenice. Alone at home one night while her parents were at an archaeological conference in London, she was disturbed by the feeling and atmosphere of the house. She left the sitting room of the home and stepped into a corridor by the stairs, spying there that same shape, black and tall, with the legs of a man and the head and upper body of a wolf. She screamed and it ran away, beyond the music room and into her mother's office. After this incident, Dr. Ross felt she could abide the phenomena no longer. Frightened, she donated her entire collection of Celtic heads, driving them herself from Northamptonshire to the University of Southampton, where the carvings underwent further study by Dr. Ross's old colleague, Professor of Geology and Dean of the Faculty of Science at Southampton, Dr. Frank Hodson. With the heads gone, the Ross family reported no further activity in their home, although they too had their house exorcised, clearing it of any malignance which might have lingered. At Southampton, Professor Hodson set about dating the heads, reiterating Dr. Ross's findings. Only then came a twist in the tale. A lorry driver named Desmond Craigie came forward, reporting to the newspapers that the Hexham heads were anything but an ancient 
relic. Rather, he said he had been working at a cement factory in the 1950s and had felt compelled to make the heads as a gift for his daughter, Nancy. Craigie had lived at Reed Avenue in the very house where Colin Robson dug the shapes from the earth, and he presented replicas of those same heads to the University of Newcastle for verification. These replicas were studied by Dr. Douglas Robson, who concluded that, yes, they were made of an artificial cement, but Craigie's heads were not the same as those in Hodson's hands at Southampton. Though almost identical, the sets of heads were made of different materials, beggaring the question as to why Craigie had made such terrifying effigies for his young daughter to play with. Furthermore, Dr. Ross was adamant. The designs were Celtic, and Craigie said, ultimately, that he had dreamed of the shapes and made them as he had for that reason. It was after this that the so-called Hexham heads came into contact with my friend, the eminent inorganic chemist at the University of London, Dr. Don Robbins. Head of the Dragon Project, Don had studied a great many stone objects and monuments, including Avebury Ring, Stonehenge, the Rollwright Stones, and countless others. It was his assertion, and the belief of many in the Dragon Project, that such stones have the potential to carry power. And all this time later, I can only agree. Through measuring ancient stones, including throughout the year, and recording variations in natural radiation, ultrasound, magnetism, and conducting experiments in archaeoacoustics, the Dragon Project developed a number of working theories about what has since become known as stone tape theory. This, if you are unfamiliar, is the idea that memories, souls, experiences, all aspects of human life can become locked within, and perhaps even inextricably trapped within objects that otherwise appear inanimate. As any scientist working on radiation knows, there are sounds in this universe that no one can explain. We have the means to block some out. Some are constants, and we have theories, of course, and work to test them. But my own experiences led me into contact with Don, who met me and within months had explained what the heads had done to him. The first thing he said was that when he went to pick them up from Dr. Hodson, packed into a cardboard box, his car would not start. He removed the heads from the vehicle and found then that the engine would run. He concluded that the heads were doing something to the electrics, and ultimately he had to tell the stones out loud to behave themselves. Once he did, they obeyed, and he made the journey back to his home. Once there, he said, the issues with electrics continued. He was in contact with Dr. Ross, and although he experienced none of the alarming nocturnal visitations, he did report strange occurrences in his home. He measured the heads and concluded two things. Firstly, that one head 
was showing much more activity than the other. This one, the girl or the witch, he said, behaved particularly strangely, and the readings he took from her made no sense. His second conclusion was that the heads were speaking to one another. They seemed linked and communicated in a language measurable in both ultrasound and alpha activity, quantifiable by the use of a Geiger counter. This is how, one July day in 1984, Don brought the heads to my door. We ran a number of experiments, including one involving a Faraday cage. And lo and behold, I could begin to see this language, signs of the speech between the stones. Even when separated, they tried to communicate. Then Don left the stones in my care, which is when the true horrors began. It had been a mistake to keep the stones separated. They told me in my dreams. Likewise, the Faraday cage angered them. The phenomena others had reported was abundant in my home, which was at the time in Camden. My equipment began to malfunction. The electrics in my house flickered on and off. Temperatures plunged, and of course, there were breakages. Drinking glasses, light bulbs, picture frames, window panes, all cracked and splintered. Rain of glass would fall inside, doors opened and closed, and amidst the banging and commotion, before long I was forced to board up my windows, which is how I learned how much they enjoy the dark. The names the stones were given were not incorrect. The girl and the boy, the witch and her brother, best I can tell. Evidently, they share a deep bond, and although I cannot understand their ancient manner of speech, I have some sense of the pain they are under. For their bodies, half human, half other, appear to me exactly as intended. They were, I suspect, seen as dangerous by those in their community, and so mutilated, their corpses blended with those of beasts as a dire warning to others. Their spirits, locked into these stone grotesques, were likely used as most Celtic heads once were, pinned above doorways as amulets or used in ceremonies for their votive power. Alas, these disfigured siblings seemingly now can never be restored to any natural state. I've tried, of course, but any attempt to scratch or mark the stones has led only to my own suffering. By this I mean extreme and immediate physical pain, which is how I have developed my current course of action, a hypothesis I'm shortly to test. As for my downfall... Well, it was not long after I developed my working theories about the heads that I became a persona non grata. When people came to my home and saw the chaos, the breakages, the bedlam created by the entities running about the house by night, frolicking and gambling and toying with one another and with me, guests concluded that I was mad. Soon, nobody would come to visit me at all, but... 
I was hardly short of company. I admit I became covetous of the heads, conscious of their power, and when Don asked for them to be returned, I took a simple calculation. I had seen myself how the electrics of an automobile could be disrupted by the stones, and so I took them driving. When my car crashed, I left it where it was, having already packed my bags. I then proceeded on foot. My residence now, as you know, is deep in South Sea Forest. Here we are surrounded by oaks planted by the Druids, hundreds of trees centuries old, and, by and large, the girl and boy are happy here. They run in the woods by night, encourage me to follow and speak their tongueless words in joy and praise. But I have my hammer, and I am old. The time has come, and life is hard living beyond the fringes. So, in but a few moments, I will raise my hammer, and beneath a large rock, I will simultaneously smash the heads to powder. The pain of doing so will be searing, and it will kill me, I'm sure. But my shack here is secluded. No one has been by in many weeks, and if they do come, I hope that all they will find is this note, my remains, and fragments of quartz dust. If you are such a person and have come here, my advice is as follows. Should the entities be free, let them roam. They may yet find their home. Whether they are here or gone, however, burn this missive, provided, of course, that you, like I, have only the highest regard for the dead. So, Eleanor, the Hexam Heads. What a great story. Ah, thank Very you. scary. I think uh, <laughs> the scariest bit was the creature made of shadows combing its fingers through her hair. Yeah, actually reported. Ooh. Apparently <laughs> happens. I mean, this was a much harder story to write for me by virtue of the fact that it's modern in a way, 1970s onwards, mm. and all the people in it were really real people. A lot of them published books, and although many of them are now passed away, I really didn't want to get my facts wrong. So was Frank Hyde, your narrator, a real person? He absolutely was. And just as in my story, not long after Don Robbins gave him the Hexham Heads in 1984, he did have a car accident, and nobody knows what happened to the Hexham Heads. Wow, so that was that was the bit you made up. Yeah, basically. Um, I give a little bit of credence to stone tape theory. Yeah. Just just a little. I mean, I do think that energy can attach itself to places and ancient objects. Oh, definitely. I absolutely yeah. do. And I'm, I'm sceptical about many aspects of hauntings and sort of parapsychological phenomena. But that, I think, does have some water. It, it makes some sense, doesn't it? But um, just... 
question about the title. Hexham yes. is not in Northamptonshire, is no, it? No, it isn't. It's actually in Northumberland. But the Heads did go to Northamptonshire and there are quite a few people associated with the Hexham Heads from Northamptonshire too. It's also theorised that they may have both originated there and possibly gone back there that nobody really knows. It's a genuine mystery. Yeah. Have we got any pictures of oh, yeah. the Heads? Yeah, yeah. Oh, fantastic, before yep. they vanished. I'll put them on social media and also on the blog. Excellent. Yeah. Just don't look too deeply into their hollow, terrifying eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not not a fan of wolf people roaming the house at night. No, and, I mean, you normally uh, like a wolf. Oh, well, <laughs> yes, I suppose that's true, but sort of half beasts. Well, maybe, maybe they're nice. They could brush my hair for me. <laughs> OK, <laughs> let's move on to correspondence before I freak myself out. OK, well, it's a relatively quiet one this week. Nobody's left us any new reviews or sent us any emails in particular, though we welcome both. Yes, please hop onto Apple Podcasts or iTunes and leave us a review if you possibly can. And do email us at threeravenspodcast at gmail.com. But we have had lots of fun on social media. Thanks in particular to our likers, commenters and super sharers this week, especially Nina, Matt, Paul, Elaine and Kurt on Facebook. Step in the picture, what the folk, Oak Tree Man and Benjamin on Instagram. And Miss Vivi, Susie Selena File, Marianne Thorson and Trillia on Twitter. So, Eleanor, where are we off to next week? Next week, we're headed to Worcestershire for, amongst other things, the legend of the swan. Well, the legend of the swan sounds very romantic, <laughs> and Worcestershire is famous for its sauce, so does this mean we're in for a saucy romance? You are ridiculous human Thank you. <laughs> You'll just have to wait and see. Okay, well, in the meantime, while our story's gone that way, we'll go this way. And remember, don't whistle till you're out of the woods. Thanks and credit go to Kevin Mainwaring's book, Northamptonshire Folktales, James's incredible blog, hexamheads.wordpress.com, and visit northamptonshire.co.uk, all of which were incredibly useful in my research for this episode. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Eleanor Conlon and Ben Harbour, and our logo was designed by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, written and produced by me, Martin Vaux. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman Such hounds, such hawks, and such lean man With a down, dairy, 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 down, down Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.